Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. So we're going to take a break from our um, sermon series in the Gospel of Mark to spend six weeks looking at what God's Word has to say about our relationship um, to Jesus and money, our own lives. And so today, um, the passage we're going to look at comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, um, verses 24 through 34. It's printed in your bulletin. I know... Um, Anytime you talk about money, finances, we all have our own stories, our own relationships with money. It can be extremely triggering, anxiety-producing. The women's Bible study is studying the same text. Um, Jen Guzzi taught on it this week, and Cindy Bolton's going to teach on it next week. And this, the recording is on our podcast, and um, I listened to Jen's talk, and it was fantastic. And I love that one of the things that she did is point out that over and over again in this text that um, Jesus keeps using the word more. And she rightfully pointed out, like, our Savior who is teaching us these things, who loves us and wants us to experience joy and freedom and shalom, keeps saying in this text, I want more for you. More, 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 more than the slavery and fear and anxiety that you experience when you think that your life consists and the abundance of your possessions, and that possessions of any type can give your heart any sort of security and control. And so I'm, I wanted to say that because I think it could be easy for us to hear this as um, like a scolding. Maybe growing up, you know, you would get scolded for money. Maybe in your marriage, you feel scolded around money. And remember that Jesus' heart and tone is one of loving compassion as a good and wise counselor, shepherd, and savior. So I'm going to pray that God will actually help us to hear that um, because we can't will ourselves to listen that way. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this text. Lord Jesus, you are our redeemer, shepherd, and friend. And we know that in the fullness of time, your love for us was so great. You treasured us to such a degree that you left all of your riches in heaven You left your throne of glory, and you came to earth to taste our sadness, you whose glories knew no end, so that by your life you bring us gladness. As Paul reminded the church in Corinth that struggled much like we do in the American church with wealth and riches and idolatry, you told us to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus that though you were rich, made yourself poor so that we who are eternally poor in and of ourselves can become rich, given freely as a gift of grace, all your spiritual blessings. Lord, we pray that you'll anchor our hearts more fully in that grace that we've received and that you'll set us free from the sin that so easily entangles, from the, the fear that so often and anxiety that grips our hearts and lives and that you'll grow us in your grace that leads to gratitude and joy. 
So supernaturally, I pray that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you promise that your word goes forth and it always accomplishes your purpose and it never returns void. So please do that now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, our Lord Jesus speaking, says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious? about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after all of these things, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the living and abiding word of God that will last forever. So here in this middle section of the Sermon on the Mount where our Savior is teaching for our good, he explains that one of the reasons we have such an unhealthy relationship with money is because we are f- afraid, because our lives are filled with anxiety. And there's two simple truths that lead us to have anxious lives. And the first is that life in this fallen and broken world is not safe. And second, we are not in control. Because those things are true, Jesus explains that the default mode of our human hearts is to look for money. Actually, he says that we seek to serve money because we think that it can provide a form of security and protection against all the uncertainties of life. And Jesus says, all this approach does is lead to more anxiety and fear. Of course, we know this is true. I mean, we we experience this as true. We live in the most materialistically blessed culture in all of human history. We live at a level of comfort and security that our ancestors could not have even dreamed of. Yet, the prevailing attribute of our day and age is one of anxiety. Time magazine said anxiety is the most prevailing quality of our current culture. 2023 statistics from the Department of Health and Human Resources said that one in three American adults suffer from anxiety. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention lead epidemiologist Laura Pratt explained that we have had a 400% increase in the use of antidepressants in the past two decades. And then she went on to say more alarming than this is that many studies show that two-thirds of people that have severe depression or anxiety symptoms do not medicate at all. As a culture, we are a people in slavery to anxiety and fear. 
And we know the sad thing about anxiety is that it is a concern about what may happen in the future, not what is currently taking place in the present. Anxiety is a concern over things that we cannot control. This is why Tim Keller said, at its heart, the essence of anxiety is a desire to control things which are uncontrollable. This is why we live anxious lives. And this is why we think that money is the most natural thing that we can look to to give us a sense of security and control. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says, because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. But of course, that structural independence that we seek to live out of is an illusion. No matter how much money or possessions we accumulate, it will never ever give us the control, security, and heart rest that we desire and were created to experience. Now again, I want to emphasize as strongly as I can that Jesus is not scolding us. Even later when he says, oh, you of little faith, I want you to pay more attention to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. I want us to, as best we're able, to hear this as a kind and loving and gentle conversation. You may be surprised to know this, but um, I get emotionally triggered a lot. And never, ever has it helped when I'm emotionally triggered about something when someone says, calm down, calm down. Instead, I said this in the first service, Jeremy Wright is one of our elders, um, especially during COVID when I happened to be shockingly triggered a lot. When he would sit down with me and say, hey, 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 you're not crazy. What you're feeling and thinking is, is not crazy. Let's talk about it. And him just acknowledging, hey, you're not crazy to be triggered about whatever you're feeling, it, it would just like bring the the um, anxiety and, and tension and blood pressure down just in those few simple words. Jesus is not seeking to scold us. He is seeking to lovingly invite us to a better way of living. Many of us this morning are sitting here thinking, gosh, this sounds great. But if you knew what was going on in my life, you would not try to tell me that I do not have to be anxious is Jesus here asking us to deny reality and try to hook on to a fairy tale pipe dream that living a non-anxious life is actually possible? No, of course not. God's word is unbelievably clear throughout about the sad condition of the world in which we live. Even in Romans 8, the apostle Paul captures the sad condition with three powerful phrases that should break our hearts. He says that the entire creation is subjected to futility that we are in bondage to corruption, that we live as in the pains of childbirth. With all of the weightiness that we experience in a broken and fallen world, not to mention our own hearts and lives, of course it makes sense that we struggle with anxiety. And Jesus in no way, shape, or form is naive about that reality. Notice in verse 34, he says, you don't need to be anxious about tomorrow Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus knows the troubles and the issues and the worries and concerns for today are sufficient in and of themselves. I love that Jesus says that. Just last Sunday, Stephanie and I took Mary Rachel to see 
her specialist in Gainesville. We do this each year. There's only one doctor in the world that focuses on the chromosomal disorder that she has. And even though we um, live and experience the struggles in her life on a daily basis, this particular um, 48-hour window, we're really zeroed in on it. And I experienced a whole flood of emotions during this trip. Anxiety, anger, sadness, gratitude. We come back feeling exhausted in many ways. I sadly was telling a bunch of friends who wanted to pray for us, yeah, my, on, my only hope is just to not get blindsided with bad news. I don't even go in hoping for some great news. I just don't want to be like blindsided by worse news which gives you a glimpse maybe of my cynical and, well, really my fearful heart. And for the most part, we had a good trip. There wasn't anything major or negative that we experienced. But the day I get back and go to work, um, I'm just emotionally and physically exhausted. And then I get a um, text from a very close friend who he and his wife had just found out that their daughter has an incurable chromosomal disorder. And he said, I just needed to talk to you this doesn't seem real. It feels like we've been hit by a bus. So I went over to their house that afternoon and sat with them for a few hours through many tears. And I told Stephanie later that it just felt like deja vu. Everything that they were experiencing, everything they were saying, and easily 95% of their questions were all about the future. And I can remember vividly, distinctively, like the chairs that Stephanie and I were sitting in in our kitchen 12 years ago when we were doing the exact same thing. And that's one of the most damning things about anxiety is it, is it pulls you out of the present and it puts you in the future and, and, and it enslaves you to fear over things that haven't happened yet, that may or may not happen, that you have no control over. Jesus, far from the denying the reality of the broken world in which we live, says that you still don't have to live in slavery to anxiety and fear. So, of course, the question becomes, how is this even possible? And Jesus says, I want you to live by faith. Now, what does that mean? If you have grown up with a definition of faith as blind hope and a leap in the dark where you deny reality, I've got good news for you. That is the opposite of biblical faith. Biblical faith is actually um, waking up to try to see and live in light of reality instead of living as if reality isn't true. And so notice what Jesus says. He says, I want you to live by faith and focus on two primary truths. And the first is, is that God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. Verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The Greek term translated look literally means to consider, to ponder, to reflect deeply upon, to pay attention to. One aspect of God's creation that in no way, shape, or form is anxious. In Ephesians 1, Paul says everything happens according to the counsel of God's will. He is in control of all things in our lives, including the very breaths that we take. Any of our delusions about control are simply that. They are delusions. They are not true at all. Paul Tripp, in his book, Redeeming Money, says, the existence that dominates the universe is not ours, 
but guides. It is this perspective that must shape and for some of us reshape the way we think about money and really just our lives. Life is not first about our wants, desires, dreams, purposes, expectations, or plans. Now, this is interesting that he says this because in verse 25, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, what is your life? Is your life not more than clothing and food and all things? He's asking that question, which is a good homework assignment for us to consider, what is our life? Sadly, if we actually answer that question based on how we live, it may line up with what Paul Tripp says here. Your life is not about your wants, desires, dreams, purposes, expectations, or plans. Life is about God's will, purpose, pleasure, and glory. We must not, cannot look at money separately from this ultimate reality of life the existence of God. We were created by God according to his wise design and for his wise purpose. Verse 27, Jesus reminds us, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? And we know that we can't. But a part of our our deep struggle on a daily basis is that we don't see reality clearly. In the passage immediately preceding this, Jesus actually teaches on the importance of learning to see well and how directly connected that is to anxiety or joy. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy, thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. This is powerful for us to consider. What we gaze upon and focus on with our eyes has an unbelievably powerfully shaping impact on our hearts, on whether we experience anxiety and fear versus gratitude and rest. So if I ask you that question, what do you gaze upon, how would you respond? Are you even aware of what you gaze upon most frequently? Kurt Thompson is the author of The Soul of Shame, The Journey of Desire. He just wrote a new book Um, about suffering and the formation of hope in the lives of believers. And it's an exploration of Romans 5, 1 through 5, and it's fantastic. And I listened to him being interviewed on a podcast, and I sent it to our entire leadership team. And one of the things he said was, we just don't realize enough um, how much we go through habits and rhythms that shape and form how we view ourselves, God, the world, and our lives. And so he said, do we really think and reflect on how many times a day, hundreds of times a day, we gaze upon and are formed and shaped by the supercomputers that are in our pockets, known as our smartphones. And he said, even the Ephesians 1:11, all things happen according to the purpose of God's goodwill. He said, how often do I just, you know, brush past that, maybe in my morning devotion, one time, maybe for a few seconds, But then hundreds of times throughout the day, I allow my focus and gaze and heart to be shaped on so many other things that are teaching a completely opposite message. Again, this isn't meant in any way, shape, or form um, to be scolding. Jesus isn't seeking to scold us. I, in no way, shape, or form, am saying these things because I'm up here preaching as someone who's gotten it figured out. I struggle mightily with fear and anxiety and worry. And so please don't, don't misunderstand that. 
But Jesus does say that what you focus on, because the eye is the lamp of your body, is going to have a powerfully shaping impact on your heart. And the default mode of our hearts is to look away from God as the creator who cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and think, what is my culture telling me will give me a sense of security and comfort? This is why in Luke 12, Jesus says, you need to take care and be on guard against covetousness for your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus knew it was necessary to give us two warnings on the front end instead of just saying, hey, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions that you have. He said, take heed, be on guard. You're not going to be aware of how this becomes the default mode of your life. To illustrate this, David Foster Wallace was a well-known author. He passed away a few years ago, wrote many books, and he was asked to give a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. This is the only um, personal address that he ever gave. And it was so powerful that they turned it into a book um, titled This is Water. And so here's what he says. This is a long quote. I, I shrunk it down on the front of your bulletin, but this, this is really long, so please just stay with me. He says, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. That's exactly what Paul argues in Romans 1. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Made me think about what you shared in our community group a few years ago, Alex. Sorry, I'm not going to get into all these personal stories, but he said, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body, beauty, sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Now, on one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is to keep this truth up front in our daily consciousness. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your own default settings because the so-called real world of men, money, and power comes along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship self. I know that was a long quote. It's kind of like a mic drop moment. <laughs> when he began that speech, he told the, you know, the little parable that there were two young fish swimming along one morning and an older fish was swimming in the opposite direction. He says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish keep on going and say, what the heck is water? He says, the immediate point of the fish story is merely talking that the, sorry, the immediate point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, ubiquitous, and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see. 
and talk about. Jesus said, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy because the eye is the lamp of the body. This is why Jesus says, if you are going to begin to experience freedom from anxiety and heart rest, you have to start by seeking to see clearly what is true. And I think that's probably why I get so emotional every time we sing How Great Thou Art, because you could argue How Great Thou Art is is just a commentary on this passage. It starts with just focusing on how great God is as the creator of all things. And when I think, right, of all that you have created, right, I, I can barely grasp it. But then it begins to get more personal and focused. And then when I think that God, his son not sparing, the creator God of all things, did not spare his son, but willingly sent him to the cross to die for me, I scarce can take it in. I love that phrase. I scarce, I struggle. It's hard for me to grasp the depth of your power, wisdom, sovereignty, but more than that, your deep personal love for me and for you. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. We must know, see, think upon, and live out the simple truth to the best of our ability that God is in control and we are not. But more importantly, that truth has to move into a more personal direction. And we need to remember that the sovereign God of the universe is a father who deeply loves and cares for his children. And this is why repeatedly Jesus says, I want you to think about the birds and think about the flowers of the field, right? They don't stress, they're not anxious, they're not worried, and your heavenly Father cares for you. He knows what you need. He says the Gentiles, that could be translated pagans, essentially anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with the one true living God such that they can relate to him as a father, they rightfully know life is not safe and I'm not in control And so they logically and rightfully freak out or numb out because they can't deal with reality. And Jesus says, we don't have to live that way. And how do we do that? Well, again, the simple answer that is easy to say, hard to do, and this is in essence the answer every week, is we have to look to the cross. We have to gaze upon, think upon, reflect upon, be shaped by the truth of the cross. See, the cross reminds us that the sovereign king and ruler of all creation knew and loved us enough that in the fullness of time, he sent his one and only son not to give us bigger and more secure trust funds or bank accounts, not to give us better hospital systems, but rather to do the thing that we needed most, suffer and die so that we could have a restored relationship with him God willingly gave away the treasure of his heart to make us his treasure. This is why we sing every year at Christmas that Jesus Christ came to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. And by his life, he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, and friend. And it is this good news that functions as an anchor for our soul. As Jesus says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, says this so well. 
And I know I give you all a lot of quotes every week in the bulletin. This is one worthy of cutting out and taping up maybe on your mirror. When you see Jesus dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. And to the degree that we see Jesus treasuring us and he becomes our treasure, our heart will rest more securely in his sovereign rule of all things. Listen, overwhelmingly, the majority of people in our congregation that I'm aware of that struggle with anxiety and anxiety around money and everything else in the future has to do with our kids. I mean, it's legit. It's understandable. For seven and a half hours driving back from Gainesville, as Stephanie and I were talking and thinking and reflecting about all the news we got, one of the things I kept wondering is what would Mary Rachel's life be like if, if I died unexpectedly the way my dad did? Now, that line of thinking, which could happen because I'm not in control of the breath I take, could lead to overwhelming anxiety and fear or I just need to drink more to numb out or it can lead me back to the cross back to the baptismal vows that we take that God you have promised that you love me and you love my children and that her life is in your hands and you care for her and even though I struggle with fear and I live more by sight than by faith help me to remember that you are the sovereign king of all things and that you love me and you love my children. And that you care for all the things that have a death grip on my heart. This is the battle day in and day out of our hearts and our lives. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer says this. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Tragically, we continue to chase after our desires ad infinitum. And the result is a chronic state of restlessness or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which lead to a life of hurry, busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn just makes us more restless. And the cycle spirals out of control. To make a bad problem worse, this is exacerbated by our cultural moment of digital marketing from a society which is built around the twin gods of accumulation and accomplishment. Now pay attention to this next line. Today is the Super Bowl. I love the Super Bowl. I'm kind of proud of myself. I made it the whole sermon without talking about the Super Bowl or about football. Or <laughs> any stories about that? I was surprised when Stephanie told me on the radio that more food is consumed on Super Bowl Sunday than any day of the year besides Thanksgiving. That was kind of shocking to me. Most people love to watch the Super Bowl for the advertisements, and they're great. He says, advertising is literally an attempt to monotonize our restlessness. They say we see upward of 4,000 ads a day, all designed to stoke the fire of desire in our bellies. Buy this, do this, eat this, drink this, have this, watch this, be this. In his book on the Sabbath, Wayne Muller opined, it is as if we have inadvertently stumbled into some horrific Wonderland. I'm not saying don't watch the Super Bowl or skip the ads. But instead, ask Jesus to help us see reality clearly. Anytime I watch games and I see these advertisements, I'll find myself inevitably looking up different products, thinking, will my life be better if I get a newer and more efficient 
electric toothbrush so that I have three on my counter right now. I should probably ask you, Grant, which one I should use and which one I should throw away. We so often can fall into the default mode. If I have the new, next, right, best, better thing, it'll satisfy my heart. But inevitably, it overpromises and underdelivers. So I'd love for us, as we finish, I'm going to invite you to please stand. And let's do what the church has been doing for thousands of years. And let's recite together what we believe in the hopes that this truth will press more deeply into our anxious hearts. And this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is one of my favorite questions of any creed and confession and catechism in the church. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation. But because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Father, thank you that that's true. Help us as we respond now in worship um, to believe the things that we profess so that we can experience more of the abundant life, the shalom and the flourishing and peace that you came and purchased for us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.